Hi, and welcome to another Room and Room podcast, presented by myself, Dr. Charlotte Westwood, and proudly sponsored by PGG Rights and Seeds. Hey, so if this is the first time you've joined, our podcasts aim to cover off a whole range of topics to do with the nutrition of ruminant species, but mainly, to be fair, focusing on the nutrition of cattle and sheep. And unashamedly, our topics also focus on the nutrition of sheep and cattle eating New Zealand types of foragers. So essentially, that's like pastures, mainly temperate pastures, uh, cool season species, and forage crops. This is our latest topic in which we're going to take a look at how our pasture plants respond to hot and sometimes humid conditions during the summer months here in New Zealand. And it's certainly hot today on the day of recording. It is 33 degrees uh, here in Canterbury in New Zealand. It's probably a cold day for some of you in other parts of the world, including parts of Australia. So yeah, for us, it's hot. Settle on in, grab a cuppa, grab beer, and let's get our latest topic underway for you. Now, first up, given that we've picked up a huge number of international listeners over recent months, and I'd like to say welcome to the non-New Zealanders that are now routinely tuning in. Welcome. Be great to have you along. And to help you guys, first up, we'll scene set a little bit about pasture species uh, here in New Zealand and how they feature in different parts of our lovely little country tucked down here on the bottom side of the planet. Then we'll move on to how uh, our more common pasture species cope when things get hot during January and February, which are our hottest months here in New Zealand. And finally, we'll finish up what this might mean, these hot temperatures, for the quality of our temperate pasture species. First up, as I said, a quick scene set about New Zealand pastures for those of you that are tuning in from other places other than New Zealand. For most regions within New Zealand, we rely almost exclusively on temperate pasture species. Now, these are often called C3 species because of the way that they uh, their photosynthesis process works compared to some of, say, the more subtropical grasses that are often called C4 grasses. So C3 or temperate grasses are by far our most commonly used pasture species in New Zealand. And of the temperate species... The majority of pastures in New Zealand are based predominantly on perennial ryegrass and white clovers and sometimes red clovers, other clovers and herbs that we'll talk a little bit more about shortly. So these species were introduced to New Zealand during the mid to late 1800s. However, through the hard work of plant breeders, including some of my very own colleagues uh, here at PGG Rights and Seeds, there are now a wide range of different cultivars of perennial ryegrass and white clovers selected for a whole range of different attributes, forage quality, uh, perenniality and persistence, all these different things. So very different genetics compared to what first came to the country in the 1800s. Now, having said that, that we are predominantly perennial ryegrass and white clover here in New Zealand, and that forms, I guess, the, the powerhouse of pasture production for us, even though we are a very small country by international standards, I guess, we do actually have to contest with quite a wide range of environments from the top of New Zealand uh, down to Southland. And particularly in the northern regions of, of New Zealand, but also inland low rainfall areas, in many cases perennial ryegrass and white clovers are not necessarily the perfect pasture species. It's often spoken of being three main zones in New Zealand as far as supporting different types of pastures and what pasture species fit best. First up, we've got the very favourable climates, uh, maritime, we're, you know, very much maritime country with a long coastline, and temperate zones. And these zones feature really, really well to support good uh, performance and production by perennial ryegrass and white clover pastures. Then we've got the harsher environments, and uh, you know, back in the pre-European days, often these were like semi-arid, tussock, hard hill and high country areas. Now where these have been tamed into pastures, we're more likely to find pasture species better suited to more challenging conditions. So these would include species like uh, coxfoot, subclovers, uh, lucerne on some of the better country. You'll still get white clovers, but typically a small leaf type white clover best suited to those environments. And of course, in reversion of unimproved pastures, quite often we'll still come across a lot of brown top and, and those types of pastures that hang in there. They look green, but aren't particularly good quality or, or dry matter yielding. 
And then the final, the third zone, uh, as mentioned before, is in the warmer areas of New Zealand. So I guess this is typically, well, north of the North Waikato, and that's where we're more likely to see these C4 subtropical species. And uh, our f- <laughs> most often, wouldn't say favourite ones by any means, would be Kaikuyu and Paspalum in New Zealand. So yeah, for sure, that said, perennial ryegrass and white clovers are by far the more predominant pasture species that you'll see our ruminant species grazing around New Zealand. So yeah, just thought we needed to mention that because we're going to focus mainly on perennial ryegrass and white clover and how that's affected by hot conditions. And we'll mention a few other grasses uh, and the herbs as well. Now there are a heap of different temperate grass species you're going to find across New Zealand farms. And look, in this podcast, we're only going to focus on three of those species. And those are going to be perennial ryegrass, because that's by far the majority um, of the the perennial grasses that we have in New Zealand. But also we'll have a little bit of a look at continental tall fescue and also coxfoot. Now, we're not intentionally ignoring other grass species that we have in New Zealand, the likes of um, timothy, grazing bromes, prairie grass, oh, I don't know, meadow fescue. So we're not ignoring those. They certainly have their own uses um, and and, in specific niche environments. But we're just going to focus on those three key ones that we find here in New Zealand. Well, look, first up, before talking about how heat stress plants respond to hot conditions from a plant feed quality point of view, and that's going to be the second part of the podcast, most importantly, the main thing that happens to hot and bothered temperate pasture species is that when conditions get particularly over 25 and certainly 30 degrees Celsius, these species will grow less dry matter. They hunker down, they go into survival mode and look after themselves and no longer uh, continue to grow grass for us or, or legumes for us. So it's going to be your feed budget that's going to be more severely impacted by hot dry conditions than necessarily worrying about changes in pasture quality linked to hot conditions. But that said, the second half of the podcast, we will talk about that. When we blame hot conditions, like 33 degrees here in Canterbury today, it's often easy to blame growth rates simply on heat because, well, it's hot. But we do need to, of course, remember there's a lot of other things going on during hot conditions. And in many cases, partial growth rates crashing out uh, go not only temperature, but hand in hand with soil moisture deficits, hot drying winds as we do have today with a hot northwesterly, and these collectively will crash out your plant productivity. Of course, it's not only the hot, dry conditions themselves that impact pasture growth rates, but it's also to do with how long these conditions carry on for. Is it just a short, sharp heat wave, I suppose, for a day or two, or is this going to carry on for a week? And that's going to impact just on how much your pasture growth rates drop away to perhaps t- uh, 10 kilograms dry matter ground per hectare per day, or even less if things uh, totally shut up shop. So when we say temperatures, I've sort of mentioned that 25 to 30 degrees for getting too hot for temperate pasture species. What are the cut points at which our different temperate pasture species like or not like from a temperature point of view? Well, let's start first with the temperate grasses. Now, when we look at ryegrass, coxfoot and continental torfescu grasses, the happy zone for those grasses to grow lots of dry matter for us, assuming nothing else is limiting production, such as nutrient availability, moisture availability, etc., is somewhere between 17 and 21 degrees Celsius, probably with an average of about 20 degrees being the sweet spot for these grasses to grow the most amount of dry matter, assuming nothing else is limiting production. So that's obviously a lot cooler than, I guess, the happy zone that our subtropical C4 species, such as Paspalum, uh, Kaikuya, that really love those warmer temperatures in the northern regions of New Zealand, sort of that nice 29, 30 degrees, and the happiest zone for these C4s in New Zealand uh, is somewhere between 25 and 35 degrees Celsius. So clearly that's why if you walk through pastures here in Canterbury in New Zealand, you're not going to see a whole lot of Paspalum or Kaikuyu down this part of the country. Even though ryegrasses and continental tall fescues and coxfits are in their happy zone around about that 20 degrees, once temperatures start to head 
higher than 25 degrees Celsius, each of the, the, these three temperate grass species respond a little bit differently when we start to exceed 25 degrees Celsius. So let's first look at when our perennial ryegrass plants get hot and bothered. Once ambient temperatures start to sneak above 21 or 22 degrees, the perennial ryegrass's growth rates do start to slow slightly and certainly by the time we get to ambient or air temperatures of 30 degrees or above, the growth rates by perennial ryegrasses are all but shutting up shop. They've had enough uh, tanking out and growth rates will crash badly and there's the damage being done to your feed budget, particularly if conditions are very dry as well as being very hot. So that was the perennial ryegrass. Moving on to another temperate grass grown in New Zealand, less, a lot less commonly, but is certainly here, is the continental tall fescue. So they're the ones that continue to grow through the summer, in contrast to Mediterranean tall fescues that are more winter active, but shut up shop and sort of go into self-preservation mode during the summer. So continental, uh, summer active, uh, in contrast to Mediterranean tall fescues. Look, these continental um, fescues, as a grass species are somewhat more tolerant of heat stress compared to our perennial ryegrasses. So tall fescues are very much a C3 mechanism of, of photosynthesis, which is great because on average the, the quality is softer than the C4s. However, the little bit more tolerance that tall fescues have of, of the real hot temperatures compared to ryegrasses is almost exclusively due to tall fescues having a much more extensive root system underground um, that can scavenge a lot more effectively for available water compared with the more shallow-rooted ryegrass plants. And if a plant has ample water, it is able to tolerate hotter temperatures better, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this shortly. Now, so the, those deeper rooting fescues, particularly um, in the second and subsequent years after establishment, they, they will chase um, down to get that water. Compared to perennial ryegrasses, we'll look with the bulk uh, bulk of the, the root mass of ryegrasses going usually no deeper than 20 centimetres or so into the soil, so just less efficient at scavenging for water. Now, this heat tolerance advantage that continental tall fescues hold over perennial ryegrasses are especially true when temperatures get to temperatures like we've got here in Canterbury today, somewhere between that 30 and 35 degrees. Now, you recall that perennial ryegrasses go, nah, not dealing with that, I'm, I'm just going to stop growing. Compared to that, continental tall fescues won't typically uh, pull the pin on growth rates uh, until they reach between that 30 and 35 degrees, at which point, similarly to ryegrasses, they go, nah, that's just too hot. But hey, that's a five degree margin of heat tolerance that we get from fescues over and above ryegrasses, so that's going to be useful. But look, we do have to remember that tall fescues, whilst they are more tolerant of hotter weather and can scavenge for water well, of course they do require exquisitely good pasture management to retain that summer quality. Although that said, advances by plant breeders have greatly improved the leaf quality of tall fescues compared to the bad old days where the old fescues are very coarse and cutty leaf quality, that the new ones are a lot better. Tall fescues, yeah, uh, they're more difficult to manage and obviously they're more difficult to establish when you're regrassing. They're a lot slower out of the ground than, than uh, perennial ryegrasses. That said, it is something we are going to have to look at with climate change increasing the hot weather that the whole of New Zealand is going to be exposed to, but particularly the North Island. So we're more likely to see tall fescue coming in, in place of perennial ryegrasses in these hotter northern regions of New Zealand, especially by the end of this century where they predict it's going to be pretty hot further north. But anyway, if you're interested in fescues, we'll, we'll get uh, a, a guest person to come in and talk about tall fescues and tall fescue management if you're interested drop us a message if that's the case. And finally, on heat tolerance of temperate C3 grass species, just um, finishing this little section up with Coxfoot, otherwise, I should have mentioned this before, otherwise known to some of you as um, orchard grass, dactylus, and this is one of the temperate species of grasses that is grown in New Zealand. And so just to repeat that Coxfoot is in its happiest zone, assuming no other nutrients or, or uh, water is limiting, happiest between 17 and 21 degrees. Now, Coxfoot can handle a few days of hotter weather, but what can start to cause problems so that it starts to struggle, just as it does with perennial ryegrass and tall fescue in the heat, is when we get Coxfoots exposed to daytime temperatures of hotter 
than 32 degrees of a week or more and nighttime temperatures of hotter than 25 degrees or more, that's when even our fabulous coxfoot will start to struggle uh, and reduce growth rates in the hotter weather. Having said that, on a positive note, if that hot weather is accompanied by very dry conditions with little or no rain, coxfoot is on average more resilient to dry drought conditions than perennial ryegrasses, possibly due to better water uptake by coxfoot compared to ryegrass. As well, coxfoot's believed to have sort of inherently a greater tolerance to the effects of dehydration compared to ryegrass or tall fescue. So whilst the hot weather will ultimately get coxfoot, just as it does with the other temperate grasses, it is more tolerant of dry conditions. So that's pretty useful when, of course, temperatures are accompanied by dry weather, which is so often the case, of course. Now, before we leave the heat tolerance topic around our temperate grasses behind, just a quick word here on the benefits of endophytes that are found in rye grasses and continental tall fescues to helping plants survive hot, dry conditions. Now, endophytes, and specifically we're talking here about novel endophytes that have been developed to get away from associated risks of standard type endophytes such as heat stress in animals uh, and ryegrass staggers in the case of ryegrasses. These novel endophytes uh, are much, much kinder to animals, greatly reduce risk of staggers in the case of, for example, AR37 endophyte. These endophytes do a range of really cool things for grasses, not only the heat tolerance and drought tolerance, but they reduce pest pressure, insect pressure on the plants. And the tolerance to hot, dry conditions may simply reflect the fact that endophytes help protect our grasses from other stresses present at the same time as heat and drought, like pesky insect predators. And therefore, plants are able to better tolerate hot, dry conditions. Whatever the mechanism in hot or dry environments, you really need to be planting uh, ryegrasses or tall fescues that contain a novel endophyte, the selection of which can be advised uh, by talking to your local PGG rights and seeds rep all about the importance of endophytes for you when we're talking about our ryegrasses or, or continental tall fescues tolerating hot, dry conditions. And then the final word on tolerance by temperate grasses to hot weather, and that's to do with the benefits of irrigation of pastures to help temperate pastures handle hot days. Now, appreciate irrigation isn't available for everyone, but for those of you who are able to irrigate, it seems that frequent irrigation, so anywhere from uh, every two to five days and, and, and uh, even, even every 10 days, which is obviously a slower return uh, interval with irrigation, it will help keep the water up to grasses so that they can happily continue a process that's called transpiration. Now simply what transpiration means with our little grass plants is that with ample water present, the temperate grasses can keep little holes in, in um, especially the underside of their leaves called stomata. They keep them wide open and they lose water from these leaves. And this is really cool, um, provided you've got more water to replenish through irrigation, rainfall, or certainly soil in the, uh, water in the soil profile, is that this loss of water from the leaves through the stomata acts in the same way as a little miniature evaporative cooling unit. So those of you listening in from Australia, inland Australia, you'll know all about your evaporative cooling units on the roof of your houses um, that keep things cool th through the evaporation of water off a surface to keep things cool. And based on some work done in Tasmania, which was really cool, they've shown that the temperature at the crown of ryegrass plants that have open stomata, plenty of water, and they are transpiring or losing water and keeping themselves cool, can be up to seven degrees cooler at the crown of that ryegrass plant um, than ambient temperatures. And so because we have these little inbuilt evaporative cooling units, the plants are a lot more tolerant of hot conditions compared to plants that are dryland plants and not being exposed to any rain and are running short on water because when plants are under moisture stress, they will close up those stomata to um, retain as much water as they can. So it's like 
unplugging those little evaporative cooling units. Not really ideal when we're trying to get our plants to grow. So yeah, not an option for many of you. Dry land farming, but yeah, where you've got irrigation available, it's a given because you're going to keep pumping irrigation to keep moisture up to plants to keep them growing. But hey, it, it reduces um, their intolerance to heat. So that's kind of like a little extra bonus. Now, just a quick word here about when you are looking at making regrassing decisions and for a range of reasons, and it may be particularly in hotter areas in New Zealand, you're thinking, mm, maybe perennial ryegrasses, um, they're just not hacking the, the real hot summers. Maybe we look at something different. Now, what I guess we need to highlight here is that in this, our latest podcast, we're talking about different grass species as an alternative to perennial ryegrass. What we're not wanting to do is say that that should be the only reason um, or justification for choosing a different grass species because, of course, changing away from your perennial ryegrass that you're used to needs to take into a, a consideration a whole lot of other factors just than chasing a species that'll handle hot weather. On the other side of that, we of course need to consider a whole range of factors when you're looking at uh, moving away from perennial ryegrass, and that may be your base soil pH and fertility. Uh, can an alternative species handle lower fertility? Your soil type and soil structure, drainage in your paddock, you know, are you going to get very boggy over high rainfall months or, or is it going to be very free draining or whatever? Your annual rainfall, of course, if you have irrigation or not, and all of those good things well beyond the scope of the standard type of podcasts that we have here at the Room and Room podcasts. The other thing too, of course, come just thinking about this one as well, when you want to move away from perennial ryegrass, chasing something that's going to be more heat tolerant, is of course the stock type that you'll be planning to graze on some of these alternative grass species. Because look, at the end of the day, on average, our perennial ryegrass probably remains the best choice for you from a grass feed quality point of view, on average, throughout the year. And so on average, typically we'll stick with perennial ryegrass. So a bit of a long ramble there, but yeah, don't just rush into getting away from perennial ryegrass to chase something that's tolerant to heat, because of course ryegrass has so many good things going for it. I guess to take home here is the best person or people to get in touch with will be people that consider all of those agronomic factors when you're looking to choose an alternate grass species to perennial ryegrass and of course unashamedly I've got a wonderful team uh, from the top of the North Island down to the bottom of the South Island with with my favourite team the, the PGG Rights and Seeds reps who will be able and very happy to work through all of the considerations you need to look at aside from just heat tolerance. Back on track where were we? Let's move on to another pasture species that is so very commonly planted with the grasses and that's our beloved clovers. Don't we love them for a whole range of reasons? And the majority uh, of our pastures in New Zealand here are planted with white clovers. Now let's focus on white clovers. They are in their happy temperature zone for optimising dry matter yield at ambient temperatures of between 18 and 30 degrees. So unlike our companion species perennial ryegrass, these clovers will keep growing rather happily even when the ryegrasses, uh, Coxford and even uh, the continental tall fescues may be starting to struggle getting into the higher 20s or even low 30s. So for all the reasons we love white clover, uh, nitrogen fixation, good quality that we're going to talk about shortly, it's all the more reason to keep a decent proportion of clovers in your temperate pastures, let alone all those other benefits, because they are a little bit more tolerant of those higher temperatures than our companion perennial ryegrasses. What about our herb species? Uh, and this includes chicory and plantain. Well, I'm going to focus on chicory because it's quite a cool little story about chicory. Apparently, chicory plants can on average handle hot conditions better than our ryegrasses, provided... Of course, the chicory has ample water available to it. And it seems that with ample water available, chicory plants can temporarily increase their transpiration rates and really push them up. So that's like putting onto turbo mode their inbuilt, inbuilt evaporative cooling systems. And so, again, provided they don't run out of water, that transpiration keeps them growing better than necessarily when ryegrasses are struggling a bit, uh, somewhere between that 25 to 30 degrees. So that's pretty cool, and that's one reason you may include or choose to include chicory within a grazing system, 
perhaps either as a standalone crop that you actually graze as a crop, or you plant it with red and white clovers, such as what we call in our brand rocket fuel, which is uh, chicory and red and white cloves for lamb finishing. Or you could include chicory as part of your temperate pasture mix when establishing a new pasture, <laughs> dependent of course on weed species present because it obviously takes a lot of your herbicide options away if you've got chicory in your pasture, it's harder to control things like thistles and that, but yeah. But that said, clever chicory with its ability to ramp up its evaporative cooling units, it will also give up and start to slow growth rates when we get continuous hot, w- hot weather, kind of over 30 and certainly over 35 degrees, particularly if at the same time we've got a moisture deficit so the chicory ends up um, turning off its little evaporative cooling uh, units and that's when you see chicory can wilt quite badly and end up quite flat and, and, and dark green on the ground, not ideal. So that's a scene set around how hotter temperatures can potentially mess with the ability of our cool season temperate pasture species, our C3 species, to produce dry matter. In other words, dry matter growth rates through the hotter months of the year like we're experiencing here at the moment. That's the first part of our podcast. Let's move now on to the second part of the podcast, which is the role for hot temperatures on messing with the feed quality, the, the nutritive value of our summer temperate pastures here in New Zealand. The main effect of really um, hot temperatures on the quality of our pastures is largely that it reduces the digestibility, uh, often reported as DOMD on our feed tests, uh, results from feed testing labs in New Zealand. Hot temperatures drop the digestibility of our grasses. And because digestibility falls, and we're going to talk more about this shortly, of course, because, and again, our feed testing labs here in New Zealand calculate or derive the megajoules of metabolizable energy per kilogram of dry matter value for our pastures from the digestibility figure, of course it's a given that a lower digestibility of pasture during hotter months also translates, of course, into a lower reported uh, megajoules of ME value for pasture when you do feed testing. And it's certainly lower than competed during cooler months of the year, and we'll talk more about um, this shortly. So trying to understand why does the digestibility crash out in heat-stressed temperate C3 pasture species, particularly grasses, and we'll talk the differences between grasses and clovers shortly. Look, it's most likely linked to the higher concentrations of the cell wall components of our cool season uh, temperate pasture species. And when you say, what are the cell wall components, Charlotte? Well, for those of you who do do a lot of feed testing, you'll be more familiar with the description on a feed test of cell wall components as NDF, or neutral detergent fibre. So when you see your neutral detergent fibre value, that is the cell wall components um, of the plant, with the exception of sometimes a little bit of um, pectins or soluble fibre that's in the cell wall. That's not part of your NDF. So we think there's two ways that cell walls, um, changes to the cell walls, mess with the digestibility and therefore the megajoules of ME during our uh, summer pastures when they get very hot. Now, firstly, when things get hot, we end up with more cell wall as a proportion of the total plant relative to cell content. So the cell contents are the yummy stuff like lipids and water-soluble carbohydrates, sometimes starch in the case of uh, legumes, and we end up with proportionately more NDF present. So for a leafy spring ryegrass, we might be saying well-managed. It's very much a function of pasture management as well, uh, these changes in digestibility and NDF. But let's say leafy spring ryegrass might be 36 to 42% NDF, depending on your grazing rotation and a whole lot of other things. But when we hit the summer, the NDF levels can bounce up as high as, let's say, 55% NDF in midsummer temperate heat-stressed pastures. Now, this can be the case even if there's no stem present on a ryegrass and it's just leaf. We'll talk more about this shortly with digestibility as well. And the second way that cell walls change in hot summer conditions is that not only do we get more NDF as a proportion of total dry matter, but the NDF that is present is less well digested in the rumen. And this is a term, particularly from overseas listeners, you'll be more familiar with as NDFD, or the digestibility of NDF. It's not a measure that's uh, commonly available in New Zealand at the moment, as it is overseas. 
So why is NDFD dropping in midsummer, even vegetative leafy ryegrass? Well, typical researchers, they all have all their theories and we're not going to get bogged down in the detail, but oh, maybe it's to do with the increase in the ratio of indigestible cell wall to digestible cell wall. Mm, probably makes sense. Or maybe it's because lignin concentrations increase um, from um, midsummer onwards particularly when you've got seed head present as well, but even if you've managed to maintain your grasses, rye grasses in a very leafy state, the lignin levels will still always be higher when hot midsummer compared to early spring. But that said, oddly enough, uh, purist nutritionists tuning in will say, but hey Charlotte, lignin often isn't strongly correlated with digestibility, so... Who knows, um, I'm, I'm a practicing nutritionist and uh, I'm sure some scientists could tune in and, and explain it better for us. But anyway, long story short, for ryegrasses, the megajoules of ME value of leafy summer pasture, and this is leafy, well-managed, no-seated, can easily be 1 to 1.2 megajoules of ME lower compared to leafy, no-seated, early spring pastures. And that's mostly to do with the effects of hot summer temperatures. So even with managing to keep seed head out. So how much uh, would we see in terms of the extent of digestibility values dropping with hotter temperatures? Well, again, we've got to lean into a bit of research here uh, and ironically go back quite a long way in time. The 1970s, uh, they did a lot of work at looking at older cultivars of continental tall fescues. So apparently, these would have been the nasty old tough cutty ones, not the nice soft ones we have nowadays. But anyway, the, the difference is interesting. Apparently, the digestibility of continental tall fescues drops by about 8% as daytime temperatures increase from 15 to 25 degrees and when nighttime temperatures increase from 10 to 20 degrees. So like I say, it's older data that, that drops saying that... Um, Digestibility crashes by 8% as, as daytime temperatures increase. And the modern tall fescues in the marketplace nowadays certainly have a much softer, lovely quality leaf compared to the olden day tall fescues. But nonetheless, that 8% is still a big drop in digestibility. Even if the absolute values, um, digestibility values are higher in the modern fescues, 8% is a big drop due to just an ambient temperature. Now, for those of you that struggle with digestibility as a number, because you don't deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the rule of thumb, if you want to roughly convert digestibility to megajoules of ME, is multiply it by uh, like 0.16. And if we multiply 8% by 0.16, we end up with a drop uh, over that period of time with the, with the increase in temperatures of about 1.3 megajoules of ME drop due to that lift in ambient temperature of just 10 degrees, daytime temps from, from 15 to 25. Wow, and that's even without the seed head. Now, there's similar work that has also been done for our favourite uh, grass in New Zealand, perennial ryegrass, and some similar work to that of tall fescues uh, has shown that you could expect a, a similar kind of drop, like 7% drop in digestibility, in midsummer vegetative leafy ryegrass compared to early spring vegetative leafy ryegrass. So that's no stem, that's just the changes due to hot weather. So that 7% works out to around a drop of about 1.1 megajoules ME uh, for leafy non-stemmy ryegrass compared to uh, early spring leafy ryegrass. It's quite a bit, eh? Other work that compared uh, ryegrass grown at either 22 degrees or whew, 32 degrees they found that the quality of a leaf of the ryegrass, so again, there's no seed head involved here, just leaf, changed quite a lot. And they looked, looked firstly at lignin content. And so as we went from 22 to 32 degrees, they found that lignin content of leaf, no stem, just leaf, increased from 1.4 to 1.8% lignin. So that's even without the stem problems going on. And with that change from 22 to 32 degrees, NDF increased by 4% as well as that higher NDF, the NDF digestibility, remember NDFD, the NDFD dropped from 78% NDFD at 22 degrees to just 66% NDFD at 32 degrees. Remember, this is just the ryegrass leaf dissected out, not whole plant NDFD. So things uh, would be a whole lot worse if we had issues around a lot of summer stem production. If you have got some older varieties of grasses that are producing a lot of seed head, perennial ryegrass seed head, through the summer, 
of course, seed head being present along with leaf. Seed head contains a lot of uh, NDF, much higher than leaf, and a lot of lignin and is very poorly digestible in terms of DOMD and NDFD. Wow, if the leaf is going to drop 1 or 1.2 ME lower in the heat of summer when we factor in a heap of poorly digestible seed head, let alone the animals don't want to eat that stuff, is that the drop in ME for stemmy summer pastures could add up to 2 or even 3 megajoules of ME per kilogram dry matter dropping compared to a leafy spring uh, pasture. So yeah, one megajoule ME drop in the leaf is just due to the effects of hot temperatures. We could over and above that two, three, or maybe even four if pasture manager isn't that great uh, in the heat of summer. So that's another topic for another day about seed head, but just remembering all the more reason when you are making regrassing decisions with your perennial ryegrasses, well, for that matter, Italians as well, or hybrids, always select grasses that have been bred for what we call low aftermath heading, which means simply that those grasses produce a whole lot less seed head over the summer after the initial heading event in late spring. So you're getting away from the uh, seed head presence, and on average you could be picking up uh, one or even more megajoule ME per kilogram dry matter over and above a variety that's continuing to seed, a lot of aftermath heading through the, the whole of the summer. Another topic, another day. Now back on track with the quality of pasture plants, our lovely legumes, don't we love those? That's our clovers, uh, our lucerne. Even our magic, super cool, high quality legumes, uh, lucerne and clover, will potentially suffer a reduction in digestibility and megajoules ME, of course, as we head into the hotter days of midsummer. And this is a effect largely due to the effects of hot temperatures. Even though, as we mentioned before, white clovers, they can actually handle hot, you know, slightly hotter temperatures than perennial ryegrasses. Now, what's driving that drop in legume quality over the summer? Now, it's all about the presence and the quality of the stem of legumes, whether that be lucerne or clovers. And those of you that have grown lucerne know all about the presence of stem. You've probably put lambs on to graze lucerne when you know too well it's a little bit too tall and those lambs just uh, strip the leaf off and leave those lignified stems behind if our lucerne stand's got a bit too tall. So we get lignin and we get reduced digestibility, reduced NDFD of the stems of any legumes, whether that be the tallest stand of lucerne or indeed a very high pre-grazing mass on your clovers. And this is particularly noticeable in your red clovers, which of course when you see the stem of red clovers, it really can be quite a, a harsh stem and quite fibrous. So compared to the stem, over the summer the leaf of the legumes, so the little leaflets of legumes, they hold their quality really, really, really well. So if we can keep shorter pre-grazing masses or pre-harvest for paylage or silage or hay for that matter, the presence of leaf is where it these legumes really work their magic to balance out the drop in quality on grasses. So when we see any drop in legume quality, it's due to the legume stem quality falling and not the leaf. Short stand of lucerne, lots of leaf, not so much stem, or you have a shorter average pasture cover of ryegrass and white clover, the quality of loosening clovers won't go off, if you'd like, uh, as much as, as grasses do, because masses of the leaf will help dilute the drop in digestibility, not only of the whole legume, but of the whole pasture, if you've got a really nice percentage of clovers present in your sward. Obviously, these clovers being present in mixed sward pastures are a really important tool in the toolkit for us for maintaining summer quality and to offset the drop in quality of grasses over the hotter months. So, yeah, long story short, you'd know this very well, more than me, I bet, that let's work hard to not only establish good numbers of clovers when you're doing regrassing and getting them into the sward and making sure they stay there. So just being careful with your herbicide decisions to take out weeds that don't take out your clovers and also that we don't let pasture covers get so tall that we end up with um, shading of your clovers and you lose the population too. And obviously with very high pre-grazing masses, if we have those tall stemmy clovers, um, lots of stem, the clover won't be as useful for diluting things down. So yeah, overall benefits of clovers and a grass-based uh, mixed sward with grasses, the, cl the clovers will end up doing a great job of 
minimising the drop in quality over the summer. And of course, other things that we're not so much focused on today, including keeping protein levels up in your overall pasture as well, when otherwise grass's protein level may drop. So plenty of protein for lactating animals, uh, whether that be lactating dairy cows, beef cows with uh, calves stored foot, even even ewes, you know, that uh, may be later lambing and still, still cruising around with lambs on them through early summer. However, it's not only about temperature and grazing management that impacts on legume quality during the hottest summer months. It's also to do with the reproductive state of our legumes. So, for example, with white clovers, let's look at them. We do see a drop in the digestibility and therefore the the megajoules of ME content in the clovers when there's a lot of white clover flowers present. Once that flowering is over and you don't see so many flowers and not so many bees all flying around after that, the quality will of course then uh, resume. So it's just a reminder that legume quality changes midsummer is not only to do with hot temperatures. Hey, and just a quick thought here, I bet some of you are going to be going and thinking, yeah, hang on Charlotte, all very well chasing a higher proportion of the pasture as clovers to drive better summer productivity because all you beef and dairy people out there, you're going to be going, yeah, all those good things about clover, what about risk of rumen bloat in cattle, Charlotte? And look, I'm I'm totally on your side on that one. I'd have to agree with you. Lots of clovers in a mixed pasture sward are simply amazing, but they do come with an increased risk of rumen bloat in cattle. So yeah, look, I reckon on that point, we'll probably pause that conversation around clovers uh, and bloat and what we'll do is we'll come back with another podcast another day specifically about rumen bloat in cattle on pastures, or probably lucin too for that matter, and how to balance the issues around chasing good animal productivity from legumes, clovers and lucerne, but not so much so that you have that uh, knife edge of having to be worrying about bloat challenges all the time and the associated stress that goes with it. So stay tuned for that and uh, maybe subscribe to a Room and Room podcast so that you uh, don't miss that episode about bloat uh, when we record and then release that in the near future. So stay tuned for that. So that's the digestibility of pasture plants as influenced by hot weather. What about the levels of non-structural carbohydrates and and what happens in hot weather? Well, firstly, just to define non-structural carbohydrates, we're talking largely about water-soluble carbohydrates uh, as part of your non-structural carbohydrates, otherwise known as WSC or sugars perhaps, but also starch. And strictly speaking, we've also got soluble fibre in there as well, but we just focus largely on water-soluble carbs or sugars and also on starch. What happens to these during hot weather? Because this also impacts on the feed conversion efficiency of when your grazing animals consume these uh, heat stress plants compared to grasses growing during early spring, for example. Let's look at the temperate grasses first. So remembering that's uh, our perennial ryegrasses, our coxfoot and our tall fescue, continental tall fescues. So in temperate grasses, the main non-structural carbohydrate present are fructans. And fructans are stored predominantly in the pseudo-stem of, the, of a ryegrass. And that's how they store their energies, like the energy store that they need. Also in the roots as well, but in terms of above ground that we eat, well, we don't eat, <laughs> your ruminants eat, uh, is, is fructan. So grasses also contain some other water-soluble carbohydrates. They're the, the, the smaller size, molecular size sugars that wander around inside the plant to provide energy here, there and everywhere. And these are things such as glucose and sucrose. Grasses only contain very low levels levels of the other non-structural carbohydrate, which is starch. You might be 1-2%. to And similarly, there's a tiny amount of pectin-soluble fibre in grasses, and that's probably 1-2%. to So that's grasses, the p- predominant storage non-structural carbohydrate of fructans. In contrast to grasses, for legumes such as clovers, the main storage carbohydrate is starch with lesser amounts of those simple sugars that wander around the plant like glucose and sucrose and very little in the way of uh, fructans. So we've got two different non-structural carbohydrate stories going on with grass and with our legumes and so we'll just explore how that may or may not change when we get very hot temperatures through the summer months. Let's look at grasses. So given the grasses contain mainly water-soluble carbohydrates, that's the fructans and the simple sugars, and not so much starch, what happens to these sugars, these water-soluble carbohydrates, during hot weather? 
Well, on a positive note, when the weather's hot, usually that means a lot of sunshine. So you'll be thinking, well, oh, oh, come on, Charlotte, like all that sunshine means that those ryegrasses, fescues and coxfoots, they, they must be furiously catching a heap of that sunlight with their solar panel leaves standing up and through the process of uh, photosynthesis must be converting that sun energy into some really nice plant water-soluble carbohydrates. And with the sun out and provided there's, of course, enough moisture present for the plant to be growing, for sure that plant will be cranking levels of water-soluble carbohydrates and in turn that will be used as an energy source to grow, which is super cool. Now the problem is, is that the sun has to go to bed overnight and when the sun goes down, that photosynthesis stops, of course, because there's no more sunlight. And what happens uh, undercover during the darkness of night is that the plant cells still have their various metabolic processes to get on with overnight. So the plant cells actually raid, they, they help themselves to a lot of those yummy water-soluble carbohydrates as an energy source overnight. So the, some of the water-soluble carbs formed by photosynthesis during the day are actually consumed by plant cells overnight. And the problem is when our hot nighttime temperatures are high, the same nights that we can't sleep and it's unpleasant, those plants are very, very busy and the consumption of sugars, uh, water-soluble carbs by the plant cells overnight increases when we have hot overnight temperatures. So this explains why on average water-soluble carbohydrate levels in summer leafy vegetative grasses will be lower midsummer than similar vegetative grasses during colder winter months. If we had perennial ryegrass maintained in a leafy state in Northland during the summer, Northland and New Zealand, on average water-soluble carbohydrate levels will be quite a lot lower and the NDF levels will be higher compared with that same leafy perennial ryegrass maintained under cooler growing conditions in Southland down the bottom of New Zealand. Now, overall, fewer water-soluble carbohydrates and in the presence of higher levels of NDF, which is what happens when the sugar levels go down, we've got relatively more NDF present, means overall grass quality will be poorer and, in fact, that grass will be less tasty for grazing animals in Northland compared to that same perennial ryegrass or grass that contains more water-soluble carbohydrates and lesser levels of NDF in Southland during midsummer. So it's quite a difference, hey? Everyone says New Zealand's a temperate climate and everything's the same. Well, it's certainly not the extremes of some of the large continents, but hey, we still do see a lot of difference in how our grasses respond to weather. So that's our temperate grasses and lower concentrations of non-structural carbohydrates when temperatures get hot. What about our companion temperate pasture species friends, the likes of red and white clovers and also lucerne? What happens to these when things get hot? Well, as we mentioned before, the, obviously the non-structural carbohydrate content of legumes is different uh, for legumes compared to grasses. We've got starches and not so much in the way of water-soluble carbohydrates, and we've got very little of those complex water-soluble carbs, the fructans. Unlike our ryegrasses, coxfoots and tall fescues, in which concentrations of water-soluble carbohydrates drop away rapidly during our hot mid-summer temperatures, levels of starch and water-soluble carbohydrates in legumes are a lot more stable when we compare quality between hotter and colder months of the year. And another reason that the quality and tastiness of clovers holds up so well uh, over hot weather and all the more reason to work hard to uh, both establish clovers really, really well and then to manage them and retain good levels of clovers in your temperate pasture swords. That quality in the summer is absolutely magnificent and the ability to continue to grow when things get a bit hot for the likes of perennial ryegrasses has to be good. Talk to your local uh, agronomist, your local retailer rep who's, who's really good at the agronomy stuff, um, and or talk to one of the PGG Rights and Seeds reps in your local area for a heap more, a lot of information about getting clovers into your swords, as well as selecting grasses that have, have been specifically selected for better summer quality. Well, this has been quite a long topic, so I think we'll wrap this up now, but just quickly a recap of what we've covered. The first thing we talked about was that a reduction in dry matter growing is by far the most important outcome from hot temperatures. 
when your feed budget is destroyed effectively with very hot weather, that's a whole lot more important than worrying about changes in grass quality. If it's just fresh air and a view for your grazing stock because your grass isn't growing, that's a much greater concern to us uh, than if the quality of the grass has changed. And remembering that said of our C3 temperate grass species most commonly found in New Zealand, tall fescue is more likely to handle hotter temperatures because it can scavenge more water than, say, common old perennial ryegrass. But good old coxfoot, orchard grass, is also pretty tolerant of dehydration. It doesn't mind getting as dehydrated in hot conditions as other temperate grasses. So in a hot, dry climate where you get hot weather every year, you're more likely to be uh, leaning towards a non-perennial ryegrass option for you. But again, that's a decision to make with a lot of discussion with your agronomist, probably involve your farm consultant because it is quite a system change. Recapping the second topic uh, we covered was that even if we keep our ryegrasses or torfescues or coxfits in a really leafy state during hot weather, predominantly through excellent pasture management, and kudos to you if you manage to keep the seed head out, even if we have leafy grass, and we still need to aspire to this, by the way, because we don't want any seed head in there if we can avoid it, it'll never be as good in terms of your expectations if you feed test it as it was when it was leafy back in the winter or, or during early spring months. So despite your best efforts, we just kind of have to suck it up. You know, we just have to accept that on average, the digestibility of that leafy pasture will be 7 to 8% lower during very hot weather in midsummer compared to back in cooler times of the year. And that works out to sort of 1 to 1.2 megajoules difference in pasture leaf quality. Uh, or, or grass leaf quality than it will be in cooler seasons. As well as that, the non-structural carbohydrate concentration, specifically levels of water-soluble grass, uh, carbohydrates and grasses, will be lower during hot summer months due to the plant cells helping themselves and munching away on those lovely sugars during the night when the sun's disappeared. And finally, we discussed what legumes get up to during hot weather. And although legumes can undergo some degree of loss of digestibility and therefore have a slightly lower uh, megajoule of ME value during hot summers, any reduction in legume quality is almost predominantly due to loss of the quality of the stem of legumes and that the leaves are very clever at retaining their lovely high quality feed quality, you know, their ME and their digestibility. Therefore, the take home here is if we keep our legumes, whether that be a stand of lucerne or, of course, our clovers in our pasture, if we keep them in a nice vegetative state, a lot of the leaf, not so much tall stems, then these legumes will do a much better job of providing high quality feed for your animals when otherwise companion grass species are um, going off a bit with the quality. Hope you've enjoyed this latest topic all about what happens to pasture species when they get hot and bothered during the summer months here in New Zealand. Really appreciate that you could join us again today. Just a heads up for our next topic that we're going to be putting together over the next week or so is that we're going to be joined by a guest presenter, fellow New Zealander, Laurie Grinter, who is actually currently on maternity leave, but uh, in her pre-maternity leave days, works with Nutritech. And the really cool thing about getting uh, Laurie to join us is that she has a master's from the University of Kentucky in heat stress in cows. So we're going to flip the topic now away from the plants and we're going to get Laurie to, to talk us through everything to do with keeping our cows cool on pasture-based diets and understanding how heat stress impacts our dairy cows. So hope you can listen out for that. Do subscribe so you don't miss that topic. But in the meantime, Keep up the good work out and about. Keep cool. That evaporative cooling is the same for us. We've got to keep hydrated and cool too. Keep well. This has been Charlotte Westwood and on behalf of myself and PG Rights and Seeds. Hope you enjoy your day out and about on the farm. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>